بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وبه أستعين وصلي وأسلم على خاتم النبيين محمد صلى الله عليه وعلى آله الطاهرين Brothers and sisters, السلام عليكم ورحمة الله تعالى وبركاته We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to bless this gathering We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to shower upon us with His mercy and to accept from us all to make us among those who are sincere in their words Sincere in their actions. Amin Allahumma Amin. As we mentioned in the previous lecture, brothers and sisters, about this new series, the Arba'in al Nawawiyya, the 40 hadith of an Imam al Nawawi, whom Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has accepted his effort, insha'Allah, due to his sincerity. Very sincere individual. I wanted to clarify something in the beginning that this is still the Friday night lecture where people can come and of course and sit down. It's not a requirement to get the ijazah, but that was something extra for those that wanted the ijazah. Because many people were asking me, is it now a closed halaqa where only those uh, that want to obtain the ijazah attend? So please, it's still a Friday night lecture where the hall is open. But again, that's just something extra for those uh, that want it, those that are seeking it, inshallah. The reason why Arba'in al Nawawiyyah is accepted throughout the world, brothers and sisters, is because it has covered the fundamentals of Islam, the foundational basics of Islam. And as we move on, we're going to discuss many issues. Some of these ahadith may be controversial, questions that many people have had in the past. But subhanAllah, through understanding these ahadith, the ulama would always say that if someone understands the 40 ahadith, he or she have a simple understanding of what Islam is all about, which may lead to a broader understanding. But they begin to understand what Islam is all about and the message of the Prophet And of course, they begin to build on that. So, this Arba'in Nabawiyyah is taught in every major college and every major institution. People begin with this before they go into Riyadh al-Saliheen or any other major, major books of hadith. So, so that's one thing. The other thing uh, I wanted to remind everyone for those that want the Ijazah program, Dr. Bukhari, you can make dua for him also. He's prepared something that you could find online. We sent it out in our email, in our e-news, Unity e-news. And uh, you can download this. Of course, do not download it through, uh, through PDF. It didn't work out well. You could download it through Adobe. So you could uh, download it to your computer first and then print it through Adobe. And inshallah, it comes out very well. And the hadith is in Arabic and then translated in English. Then a few pages for notes that you and I can have. Instead of buying the book, it's already set. And you find it also in our website. So you could go and you could print it. I was about to print it, but I was like, subhanAllah, we don't want to you know, let the masjid take the burden. Everyone just print your own. And inshallah, you could come and we all print our own inshallah. So I just wanted to make sure that everyone knows that. For those that have not yet purchased the books, you don't have to go online and purchase the book. It's already on the website. You just need to uh, print it out So save it on your computer. And of course using Adobe and then printing it out 
will give you the best version of the Arabic, the English, and also the notes and the pages on the back for notes that a person may take. Barakallahu feekum. Inshallah, we're going to begin with the first hadith. And the first hadith is a hadith that you find in many of our major books. Bukhari alayhi rahmatullah began his sahih with this hadith. This is a hadith that many of you have heard in the past. Anytime you had a shaykh that was speaking about sincerity and renewing one's intentions, they would begin with this hadith. This is a very, very famous hadith. So as we recite this hadith, brothers and sisters, we will not only focus on the sincerity part or the sincerity aspect of the hadith, but a few rulings and benefits that one gains from this hadith. So what are the lessons that we learn from it? عن أمير المؤمنين أبي حفص عمر بن الخطاب رضي الله عنه قال سمعت رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم يقول إنما الأعمال بالنيات وإنما لكل امرئ ما نوى فمن كانت هجرته إلى الله ورسوله فهجرته إلى الله ورسوله ومن كانت هجرته لدنيا يصيبها وامرأة ينكحها فهجرته إلى ما هاجر إليه this hadith is narrated by Umar ibn al-Khattab anhu Umar ibn al-Khattab anhu became a Muslim in the sixth year of Nubuwa. The sixth year of Nubuwa. And of course died in 23 Hijri. 23 Hijri after leading the Ummah for 10 years. Great Khilafah. And subhanAllah, he was the answer of a dua that was made by the Prophet sallallahu where, Allah, where the Prophet ﷺ made that famous dua that, O oh Allah, guide one of two individuals, one of the two whom are closest to you, most beloved to you. And he mentioned Umar ibn al-Khattab and also Amr ibn Hisham, uh, Abi Jahl. And then of course, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala answered the call of the Prophet ﷺ and his answer was the Islam of Umar anhu Umar radiallahu anhu became a Muslim three years, three days after Hamza. Umar radiallahu anhu became a Muslim three days after Hamza ibn Abd ibn Abdul Muttalib, the prophet's, the prophet's uncle. Ibn Mas'ud radiallahu anhu says, "Ma zilna adillah hatta aslam Umar." That we were always humiliated and disrespected until the moment Umar radiallahu anhu became a Muslim. So it shows you that one, what one person can do. How Umar radiallahu anhu was so dedicated in changing things and standing by the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. After the Islam of Umar radiallahu anhu and Hamza ibn Abdul Muttalib, the Prophet's uncle radiallahu anhu, the first protest in Islamic history took place. Where Umar radiallahu anhu stood on one side, and some of the muhajireen were behind him and Hamza radiallahu anhu stood on the other line and a few of the muhajireen behind him and the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam in the middle. This was the first demonstration, the first protest in Islamic history where the non-Muslims, the non-believers of Quraysh didn't even think to extend their hand of harm or to stop the Sahaba from moving on to the Kaaba or to cut off their way, or to harm these individuals. They were striked with fear because Hamza was on one line, and Umar radiallahu anhu was on the other line. The Prophet sallallahu said that our actions, or you and I, 
and our actions are judged based on our intentions. With anything that you and I do, our actions are judged based on our intentions with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And subhanAllah, this is something that no one controls but you and I. No one has access to our hearts but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And He knows your heart. He knows why you're doing it. And the Prophet sallallahu then begins to speak about one of the greatest ibadat that was ever performed in history, which is hijrah. Whomsoever performs hijrah and migrates for the sake of Allah and His Prophet sallallahu he or she will be rewarded for that. And whomsoever performs hijrah for anything else, and he mentions two things here, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, for worldly gains that a person may gain just traveling from Mecca to Medina, or any other traveler in the future, or a person that may migrate in the future for a business or money to gain, then of course he would only get that. Or for a lady to marry, then he would only get that. So there's no ajr whatsoever. Ibn Taymiyyah alayhi rahmatullah says, that the story behind this is that there was a guy that was famous to be called Muhajir Ummi Qais. The migrator of Ummi Qais. Is that this person wanted the credit of Hijrah, but his intention behind the Hijrah was to what? To marry Umm Qais. That was his intention. How do we know, because we said intentions here, is that he was proud to be called Muhajir Ummi Qais. It's like, yeah, I'm Muhajir Umm Qais. And that was, you know, Nas'Allah Salaam wa Al-Afiyah, he took honor in that, that he was called Muhajir Umm Qais. So the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam just said the hadith, it was a very general, very general hadith. In these hadith, brothers and sisters, we will not only address the spiritual aspect of it, because sincerity and other similar topics are topics that we have discussed in the past but also a few fiqhi rulings that may, uh, may be beneficial, that which we can gain in these simple sessions bi-idhnillah. Al-Shafi'i wa Ahmad radiyallahu anhumah wa rahimahumallah say that this hadith is one-third of Islam. One-third. Can you just imagine if someone just masters this hadith? He or she have mastered one-third of their faith. Ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to make us among those people. A few lessons, inshallah, so we could utilize our time. Number one, this hadith teaches you and I to constantly remind ourselves of the presence of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Istihdarul khaliq. With everything that you do, because our intentions are always renewable. You don't fast next year with the intention of last year. Like, khalas, I made intention three years ago, khalas, alhamdulillah. The first point that a person gains from, from renewing their intention is to remember that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is present. To know that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows what's in the midst of their hearts, what they're thinking about, what they're imagining, what they thought about coming into this project, to this program, to this session, to their effort, to their work. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows it all. And since a person knows that, it is time to reflect to question oneself. And our ulama, as Al-Hassan al-Basri would say, a sincere believer would remind himself and herself before the amal, as the amal is taking place and after the amal. 
before the amal to question oneself, why am I doing what, what I'm doing? What's the reason behind it? What's my intention? Through the process, shaitan may come in and whisper. And the intentions may change. SubhanAllah, a person might begin their salah alone and suddenly someone comes in and now they know someone is watching. Maybe someone that they want to please. Or they just decided to prolong their salah, extend their salah. So they remind themselves in the middle of the process. Maybe someone came into a fundraising event with the intention of giving lillah. Lillah. And then they began to find their peers and their friends donating money right and left. So again, they raised their hand. That's something that a person should continue to do. Because to prevent yourself from doing khair is also from shaitan. That's how shaitan comes in. He allows you to overreact to the ibadah where this ibadah will drag you into jahannam and then you find yourself doing nothing good. But just to renew your intention in the process and to say, I am doing it for Allah. And then once our deeds are completed, upon completion, you question yourself, why did I do what I just completed? What I've done? What was my intentions? How did I start? And how did I end? And of course, this is how our ulama trained us in the process of ikhlas. Another point that we learn from this hadith, brothers and sisters, is that the ikhlas, or one's intention, I'm sorry, a niyyah. Let me just mention the difference between ikhlas and niyyah. People always ask that question. Al-niyyah, because there are two completely different things. They're, they're not the same. Niyyah and ikhlas are two different things. And people uh, sometimes may miss that. When the imam or the shaykh, like me, I just mixed it very quick. It's not the same thing. These are two different meanings. Two different words. Niyyah is intention. Intention, regardless of who your intention is for. That's niyyah. So niyyah is wajibah. It's, it's a must. You have to do it in every ibadah. Number two, liman min ajlihi yuf'al. That's when ikhlas comes in that who do you do, who do you perform for? Who do you do your act for? And of course, we do it for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So that's when ikhlas comes in. So you have niyyah, which is general intention. Number two, who do you do what you do for? Who do you perform your ta'a for? Is when ikhlas comes in that I am doing it for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So when you come into your salah, you have to have the intention that I am praying. Salatullah. Inside, of course. This is an internal ibadah. Something between you and Allah. And in your salah, you do it for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So when you come, again, when you fast, I am fasting today. Who are you fasting for? I am fasting for Allah. So these are two separate ibadat. The second point, so this was just to clarify that, is that aniyyah and where it belongs and where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has placed our nawaya is in our hearts. Aniyyah mahalluha al and this is very important to understand that you and I are not required to speak up in our niyyah and to say our niyyah out loud unless the Prophet ﷺ has mentioned it. People may begin their salah, especially our fathers and our grandparents, they would come in and they would say, No way to an usalliya arba'a raka'atin khalf al-imam. And then sometimes they would say the imam's name, khashi'ina lillah. It's like a whole long niyyah. That's wrong. Because the Prophet ﷺ never did it. 
Even with the story of Umm Qais, the guy that wanted to marry Umm Qais, if it wasn't that this individual took pride in his hijrah for a lady, the Prophet ﷺ would have never spoke about this person. But he was publicizing, publicizing that matter. So a niyyah belongs here. It's something between you and Allah and our nawaya are not said. There are certain times where our nawaya are mentioned verbally. As he sallallahu alayhi wa sallam has taught us in hajj. As he sallallahu alayhi wa sallam has taught us in umrah. When you travel for hajj and umrah, you are asked to say your niyyah out loud. And people know that. Labayka, Allahumma. And people say it out loud where it's of course verbal. It is no longer something between you and yourself. People also can hear your intention. So aniyya mahalluha al-qalb. To remind you that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is watching. Even though you may have people that say, oh, but saying it verbally is okay. But we miss the purpose. You lose that spirituality. Because niyyah is so valuable that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has told you and I that this is between you and I. No one knows anything else about your intention but me. Which will allow you to constantly reflect to think about your intentions, to renew your intentions, and if you do go wrong, ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for forgiveness because no one else knows anything of what has taken place internally. SubhanAllah, so it's, it's an ibadah that Allah has kept between you, between you and Him. Another point that we get from this hadith is that sometimes there may be a small ibadah that you and I may perform and it becomes great in the sight of Allah because of your intention. And there may be something so great in the eyes of people and in your eyes. But of course it is insignificant in the sight of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because our nawaya. Our nawaya play a major difference, brothers and sisters. Our intentions and also our sincerity in those intentions play a major role of how ibadah has a direct impact on you and I. So that's another benefit that we get from this hadith. Another point, brothers and sisters, is when the Prophet ﷺ is reminding you and I of renewing our niyyah. This is so important. It allows you to look at our ibadat from a different angle. Because there are times in our lives where our ibadat become adat. That it just becomes normal rituals. Something that we're always doing. So we lose the spirit of the ibadah. I can tell you this very easily. I can speak for myself. Right after salah. And that's it. It's something that we do. And trust me, we hit 33 straight. Like we already know. Our fingers, trust me, if you would allow someone to count, you'll hit 33. You're so good. You know when to start, when to stop. But our ibadat have become adat. We come into our salah, Allahu Akbar. How many times? Let alone what the imam recited. Forget about that. Sometimes we don't know what we recited in our salah. And you can ask yourself, what did I just recite? So what niyyah does, it allows you to reflect. When you come in, when you make the wudu, why am I doing what I'm doing? It allows you to come in with a clear heart, prepared to stand in the presence of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's when salah is most effective. So one thing that we get from this hadith, and you hear it in all of our gatherings, in any question that is presented in public, about hajj or umrah, they always tell you and I, that you're judged based on your intentions. Even when it comes to fasting, 
You have some ulama that have made renewing one's intention every day as a fard, as an obligation. That if you don't renew your intention for the next day, after iftar, for the next day, your siyam is not accepted. You have a sad al-Malikiyah that believe, no, just having it in the beginning of Ramadan, inshallah, that's, that's enough. Inshallah, your siyam is accepted. But it shows you how serious this topic is that ulama have also set conditions where renewing is, your intention is an obligation every single day with every ibadah that you and I, that you and I perform. Another point that I find very important in this hadith, which we find very important, brothers and sisters, is that the Prophet ﷺ, when he would teach his sahaba, he could have said, That you're judged based on your intention. And just end with there. End with that. End there. Doesn't need to elaborate, doesn't need to explain anything. SubhanAllah, the Prophet ﷺ would always try his best to get his point through. And he would use examples. Sometimes when a person may want to sound sophisticated and come up with all these terminologies, which is very easy, especially the Arabic ones. A person could come up and just give a few poems, they're like, SubhanAllah, هذا, هذا عالم, عالم. It's so easy, you just need to memorize five or six. It doesn't take a genius. And you just travel with those six wherever you go. And people are just going to be mesmerized and lost. But the Prophet wasallam said, هَلَكَ الْمُتَنَطِّعُونَ that a person that overdoes it, overdoes, that oversophisticates their speeches and their lectures and use certain words to make things difficult on people where they sound people of intelligence. And the Prophet said, these people have destructed themselves. When you find in the prophetic tradition, the Prophet was always simple. His ahadith are understood by the masses. People would come and hear the Prophet and get this point. And he would say the hadith, but he sallallahu alayhi wasallam wanted to make sure that the sahaba understood the hadith. So he came up with an example, with a general example, without pointing to a person, without exposing an individual or embarrassing a person. He said, Anyone that performed hijrah for the sake of Allah and his prophet, that's what he would gain. And that's the ajr that he or she will receive. And then he finishes off the hadith. So to come up with examples, to say a story, some people he call others qassasin. These people are stories, these are misguided people, we shouldn't listen. No, no, it's part of our prophetic tradition to come up with examples and stories. And subhanAllah, some people are very good in it. Never underestimate the effect that our stories may have on people. So he وسلم, gave them a live example that the sahaba were able to relate to. Another point, which is very important, and this is a very long debate, is the understanding of hijrah. Hijrah is migration. And our ulama, radiallahu anhum, wa rahimahumullah, would say, hijratu min dari al-kufri ila diyari al-islam, is to perform hijrah from the land of disbelief to the land of Islam. And when our ulama would speak about a dur, different locations where a person may live, they say Daru Harb, a location and a place of war. Number two, Darul Islam, a country that is known for 
Islam, to be known as a Muslim country. And number three, Daru Kufr, a place of disbelief, where people don't accept and people have not yet embraced what you and I have embraced. And of course, this does have roots within our tradition, but not with the same terminologies. It's completely different. And again, it's a different topic. I don't want to go into that. But you do find it rooted in our tradition. This understanding and this concept is not something that a person may deny and say, it has no, there's no roots in our tradition that speaks about this. No. The Sahaba radiallahu anhum and our ulama have spoken about this in many books and that you find that you find out there. Ibn al-Qayyim is one of the best that I've ever spoken about this topic. Even when they speak about Diyarul Islam, that what's the definition of a Muslim country? Of course the ulama have difference of opinion. Some ulama say any country where the Muslims are a majority, even if the leader was a non-Muslim, then this is Diyarul Islam. This is Diyarul Islam. This is a Muslim land. Basically, you don't have to perform hijrah. Some ulama say no. It has nothing to do with the general public, but it goes back to the leader. That if the leader is a Muslim, even if he or she do not fulfill the obligations and the commands of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, but if he is known to be the leader of this country, of the Muslim world, and he is known to be as a Muslim, then this is Diyar and Islam. And of course, there's a huge debate within our tradition. Within our tradition. Abu Hanifa radiallahu anhu. SubhanAllah, this, this man was amazing. Amazing. Even in Qada, when we would study law, most of the Qada that has been embraced by almost all major institutions. If you're talking about Azhar, Saudiya, Yemen, and other countries, Suriya, they take the Hanafi Qada. It's the Hanafi Qada that is mostly used in these courts. Abu Hanifa was, subhanAllah, someone, someone that was completely different. Just his intellectual level and his ideas, his, his philosophy, as if Abu Hanifa is living with us today. Abu Hanifa radiallahu anhu, when he explains Diyarul Kufr and Diyarul Islam, he says, Islam, Diyarul Kufr and Islam, it has nothing to do with religion. It has nothing to do with the masses, or the government, or the president, or the Khalifa. It is something with, it's something that deals with amn, with peace and fear. If a person is enjoying a peaceful atmosphere where he or she are able to demonstrate their religion فَهُمْ فِي دِيَارِ الْإِسْلَامِ Then these people are living in a Muslim land. And if they're experiencing fear as they practice their faith, then they're فِي دِيَارِ كُفْرِ And he responds back to the people, which makes complete sense by the way. Wallahu alam, it has nothing to do with emotions and picking and choosing. You could, how many Muslim countries document the people that pray Fajr in the masjid? This is real, by the way. It's not a joke. How many people have beards? How many people pray Isha in the masjid? And I know many of you could agree with me. Subhanallah, in, in, in Tunis, for an example, they would document everyone that would walk with a beard. And the ladies that are walking with hijabs. And subhanAllah, someone comes to America and says, I shouldn't be here. Where do you want to go? Where you practice your Islam freely in this country. So, Wallahu alam Abu Hanifa, 
Subhanallah, thousand three hundred years ago, thousand three hundred and some years ago, a tabi'i came up with this understanding that if you are in peace and you can demonstrate and follow your religion, uh, religion in a very peaceful atmosphere, then you are in Diyar al-Islam. If you're always striked with fear, regardless of the masses or the majority or the ruling as a Muslim, it has nothing to do with that because you cannot follow your religion as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants you to do. Ibn Hajar radiallahu anhu, he uh, speaks of an Imam al-Mawirdi, one of our classical ulama. And he says that everywhere is Diyar al-Islam. Of course, this is not this opinion is not taken by the majority. But Ibn Hajar, of, co- of course, takes on this opinion of an Imam al-Mawirdi and says that wherever you go is Diyar al-Islam because all the land belongs to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Doesn't matter where you are, everything and everywhere belongs, belongs to Allah. One thing that I feel is very important, brothers and sisters, is that the idea itself, with splitting these points into three categories, is something that we may embrace as people that are living in the 21st century. And we do find bases of this in the Qur'an. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks about the ayah of diya, that, needs, that can be a topic by itself. But the terminology can change. And this is where people go wrong. Because they said, you have to say, Diyar al-Kuf, Diyar al-Islam. And you have people that begin to debate and clash. Where these words, the terminology that was used is not prophetic. But the general concept of these words that were used, the general understanding of what they thought was in the Qur'an and Sunnah was created by our fuqaha and our classical ulama. But the word itself may always change. And the ulama came up with these words because they found it to be fitting. Their time, the time that they lived in, the challenges that they were facing. So it's not prohibited for ulama in the future that are good in politics, that are philosophers, well equipped with Islamic knowledge to come up with different terminologies. Because this was not said by the Prophet ﷺ where you say, تَقْسِيمَاتٌ ثَلَاثٌ That these are three categories. I can give you another example. Ibn Taymiyyah when he spoke about Aqeedah and he came up with three steps or three parts of Aqeedah. Allah as a Rabb, Allah as a Ilah, and of course His names and attributes. If a person comes and says, no, I want all of this to be one. I don't believe in these three categories. I believe in the idea itself. I believe that I have to believe Allah, acknowledge Allah as a Rabb, the provider. Allah the Lord, the one whom I worship. And I believe the names that Allah has connected to Himself and named Himself and His attributes. He's still a Muslim. Is it fard to believe in what was said by Ibn Taymiyyah to three categories? No. But sometimes it's, we have been affected even though it's very solid. Ibn Taymiyyah radiallahu anhu, rahimahullah, it's almost like a curriculum that he provided you and I. It's like number one, number two, number three. People love that, right? To have points. But is it an obligation? Now when you speak to people, it's an obligation to go by those three points. Even if you believe in all three, and you come up with a different form, and you categorize it differently, they say, no, this is not unacceptable. alam, brothers and sisters, we have to keep in mind that terminologies may change due to the change of time. The change, of course, of mindsets. The language. Nowadays, you don't have to say Diyar al-Kufr. And subhanAllah, you have all the classical ulama now that we rely on 
They say, you can say Diyaru Mu'ahada. A people which you and them have agreed upon documents, signed documents. There's Mu'ahada, there's Musalaha. It's not what people had in the past, the Roman Empire and the Persian Empire and uh, the Abyssinians. And it's not like that anymore. There's United Nations. There's universal law. So the words and the terminologies and the understandings have completely changed and the Muslims have to be up to that challenge where they come up with new terminologies. And they say, so the understanding of it remains, but the words must change because it is no longer the same. And subhanAllah, if I, we do believe that if a person approaches this topic with this understanding that it is no longer the same terminology, it allows us to overcome this obstacle that many people have. And subhanAllah, this may not be happening here at this masjid, but you'll be surprised in other masajids where people just clash heads. What is this Diyar Kufr? And I'm only here for da'wah because it's haram to live in Diyar Kufr if I'm not giving da'wah. Uh, it's, it's an ongoing conversation. So to keep in mind that the world has changed, which our ulama nowadays do have the authority to interpret things according to that which allows us to navigate through these challenges and to improve as an ummah, they do have that authority of ishtihad. And these people exist, ishtihad, the door of ishtihad has not yet been shut. There's ulama that the world has embraced and accepted their ilm. So I just wanted to mention that, that hijrah, brothers and sisters, is something in ibadah, the Prophet ﷺ ended Hijrah, he said, Hijrah بعد الفتح, بعد الفتح. That there's no Hijrah after Fath. Even the people that say there's no such thing as Hijrah, they also use this hadith, by the way. But it's, a, it's, a, it's, a top, it's another topic. So brothers and sisters, Hijrah, the concept of Hijrah still exists, but it is not what it used to be. It's where a person is able to demonstrate their faith. This is where they're asked to remain where they are. And the moment a person finds it very difficult to hold on to their faith, and to follow and to practice their religion freely, then he or she are asked to perform hijrah if they're able to do so. If us in America or anywhere else, we're not allowed to pray or to do this and that, and it becomes very challenging to become a Muslim, you're not allowed to fast. If you fast, they see you on the street, maybe they put something in your mouth, and you can't fast, and you can't do this, and you can't do this. As a Muslim, you are asked to perform hijrah. And that's anywhere in the world. If you're in Saudi and they did the same thing, you're asked to make hijrah. Because preserving your deen, wherever you find it difficult to practice your deen, and there's harm in the process, you're asked to make hijrah from that location to another. Because the objective of all of this is to practice your deen freely. And of course, the ayah in Surah An-Nisa, that they oppress themselves in the process, where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks about the angels when they come and take that person's soul away. And these individuals oppress themselves because they had the option of migration, but they decided to remain. And by them remaining in that location, they harmed themselves in the process. And their iman was no longer there. Their deen was lost in the process. Allah says, what happened to you? They said, we were oppressed in the land. And then the angels then tell them, Alam takun That you could have traveled anywhere else. All this land belongs to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You should have migrated from this land. And Allah says, These people then are punished by Allah subhanahu 
wa ta'ala. Another point, brothers and sisters, that we find very important in this hadith is that subhanAllah, with sincere intentions, a person is saved through their intentions in dunya and in akhirah. Their sincerity. Their sincerity in their intentions. A person is preserved by Allah in dunya and akhirah. The first individual to enter Jahannam, even in our interfaith groups, they, we always tell them, they say, oh, you guys believe everyone's going into hell. I tell them, you know who's going first? They said, who? I said, who do you think? They said, us? I said, no. I said, a scholar. A Muslim scholar is the first person to get straight into hell. I'm like, no, yeah. no, I really mean it. The first person, the first three to enter into Jahannam are three. Three Muslims. Number one, a alim, a Muslim scholar, an imam, a da'iyah, person that led the prayers. First person to enter. The second person, a generous giver. Very generous. They did not give it for the right reason. A Muslim, straight to Jahannam. And the third person, Mujahidun fi sabirillah. A person that fought on the path of Allah, straight into Jahannam. So being that sincere person, brothers and sisters, and renewing our intention is a form of safety in dunya and in akhirah. Another point, and I will end with this, brothers and sisters, and open it for Q&A. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and this is something that you and I must keep in mind. That shaitan has promised Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to deceive us all. This is a promise that shaitan made that he will deceive everyone. He will work on you and I until you and I are misled and misguided. May Allah preserve us all. But there was a group that shaitan acknowledged where he has no path to them, no access. Only the sincere servants of Allah are people that shaitan has no access to. Shaitan himself knew that this is a losing battle. It is a waste of time to declare war on people who have connected their hearts with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So brothers and sisters, there has to be a'mal in our daily lives where you and I renew our intentions and make sure that we reconnect with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and renew our intentions and say we are doing this for Allah. It is that amal, regardless of how big or small your amal is, it is that amal that has a major impact on us. How many a'mal you and I do? And subhanAllah, we don't find the effect, effectiveness of this amal. We don't experience the effect. We don't see it in our daily lives because we lack the ikhlas. You can do a very simple action, but with ikhlas, you're very sincere. You know why you're doing it. And subhanAllah, you see the effect of that amal in the ajr, in the reward that you and I will receive, and also the outcome that a person may experience. So everything and any time you and I find ourselves performing ibadah, ask yourself why you're doing it, and renew your niyyah with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this is the first hadith that our Imam, that Imam al-Nabawi began his al-Arba'iniyyah, al-Nabawiyyah. And of course, that Imam al-Bukhari in his collection also began with this hadith. 
and our ulama in their majalis when they would begin hadith in any hadith session our ulama would always begin with this hadith because it is this hadith that allows us to navigate through the rest and of course in our daily challenges we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to make us among those who are sincere those who continue to renew their uh, intentions bi-ibnillahi subhana that was the first hadith for those that want the ijazah you have to memorize the hadith just also speak about Umar very briefly and also um, again taking notes was something that was encouraged and that's why this was prepared again you can make dua for Bukhari for doing it Dr. Bukhari but taking notes is also something don't rely on this because you're going to forget you're only human in the end you only remember 3% of what you heard after like the stages so Allah alam what is 3% This hadith, no. I, I was just speaking about Umar radiallahu anhu. This hadith, of course, was after Hijrah. 